Our uh, reading this morning is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and we will read together from verse 18, Romans 8, 18. It's page 1135, 1135 in the Pew Bibles. Romans 8:18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of god to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Amen. How do we keep going when life is hard, when the Christian life is hard, when it doesn't seem fair, doesn't make sense when we've put up with more than we think we ought to have to put up with and still it doesn't get any easier it just keeps on going we move from trouble to trial to trouble to trial how do we keep pressing on with the lord how do we stay uh, encouraged and enthused by the life that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not going to do this, but imagine I were to say your name and bring you out to the front and ask you to stand at that lectern down there and provide an answer to that question. What would you say? How do you keep on with Jesus? when it's tough to do so? Well, we could say, in answer to that question, we fix our eyes on Jesus, don't we? Couldn't we? That would be a biblical answer. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Or we could remember 
the promise that God will use our trials and our troubles to, to, to grow us, to mature us in Christ. But He is working these things that are bad for good. And not just for good, but for our good. That's another good, solid, biblical argument, isn't it? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Two good biblical answers, but there is another that we could add to the list. And again, we could say that it's about where we look, what we, what we fill our minds with. So we can look back to the life that Jesus lived in this world broken by sin, to the suffering that he willingly endured in love for us, to the example that he has set for those who would follow him. We can look back to that, or we can look inwards in the present day to what God is doing in and through the struggles, the trials, and the troubles that we face today as believers in Christ. But we can also look ahead. We can also look forward to the time that is to come. And it's important that we do that, that we look to the future that belongs to those who persevere, to those who run the race to which they are called in Christ to the very end. On Friday mornings, I take the girls uh, across the road and up the hill and into the school and nursery. Um, and there's a lollipop man at the bottom of Bellsdyke Road in the morning called Ross. Can't go wrong a name like that. And uh, Ross is a very happy, uh, cheery man. He, he was made for that kind of job. He speaks with all the children. He learns their names. He gives them a high five as you get down in the morning. Then he tells you the weather forecast for the rest of the week. Now, you need to forget Judith Ralston and Sean Batty because Ross, the lollipop man's weather forecast, is never wrong. Honestly, so if you need to know the weather, bottom of Bellsdyke Road, uh, half eight in the morning, Ross, and he will do you proud. So the other thing that Ross does, and this is not so good for me anyway, on a Friday morning, is he says to the boys and girls, it's nearly the weekend, yay, and they'll go, yay, and I go, it's nearly Sunday and I'm not ready, inside, I do that. Uh, but over the past few weeks, he stopped doing that. He stopped saying it's nearly the weekend. And instead of that, what he now says is how many weeks there are before the summer break. So as Valerie reminded us already this morning, three weeks to go, three weeks to go till the summer holidays. And this vision of the summer holidays 
is keeping our kids and our lollipop man going through the final few weeks of work and study. That vision of long lies and sunny skies and the Airdrie Baptist Church Holiday Club, 1st to the 5th of July, that vision of all the good things that the summer holidays will bring is keeping them pressing on with a smile on their face and a skip in their step. And as Christians, we have, of course, an infinitely greater vision of an infinitely greater future which ought to keep us pressing on with joy. I consider, says Paul in verse 18, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So there is a comparison there, the weight of the sufferings of today against the weight of the glories of that day. And maybe we ought to take this time to imagine, to think about all of the sufferings and all the trials and all the troubles that we are enduring today. And we could add to that list, I suppose, those that we have gone through in the past. It's a bit speculative, but those that we will go through in the future. Pile them on in your mind. Think about that weight. Think about how heavy it is. Uh, Imagine it, I suppose, as a a weight from the gym, you know, a kettlebell or something. Imagine how heavy it would be. And then you have a set of scales, the old-fashioned scales, and you drop the weight of all those worries and all that stress and strife and trial and trouble, you drop that heavy weight on the scales and down it goes with a thud, up the other end of the scales goes. You think that's really heavy, what I've had to endure. Troubles and the trials seem so heavy for a moment until you notice the big massive crane lifting uh, a huge shipping container of glory over the other side of the scales. And then you notice another shipping container and another and another off into the horizon as far as the eye can see of the glory that will be ours on that day in Christ Jesus. Suddenly that 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years of struggle and strife doesn't seem so heavy anymore. The kettlebell of trouble is now as nothing in the face of this great glory that will be ours in Christ. We know, don't we, those of us who know Scripture, who read Scripture, that Paul is only speaking about that which he has experienced himself. He is no stranger to trouble. He is no stranger to suffering. He says in his second letter to the church at Corinth, five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one, 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is a man who is no stranger to suffering. But you know what he also says in that same letter? He also says, we do not lose heart. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And by fixing his eyes on that unseen glory which was to come, which is to come, he was able to run his race well. He was able to say when the time came, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I'm a bit jealous of Jason. I would love to get a CBE. I'd love to go and to meet the Queen at Buckingham Palace. That would be great. But even better than that is to receive that commendation from the King, from the King of Kings. We look forward to that great and glorious day. So there is an eternal future for us who are in Christ Jesus that is free from sin and free from the fruit of sin, which is sickness and sorrow and separation, suffering. That is our eternal future. And of course, it's beyond our ability to fully grasp because we've never lived in a world free from these things. But nevertheless, we look forward to it with eager expectation because we know that he who has promised is faithful. So we allow this hope to sink down deep into our heads and into our hearts, into our minds, into our emotions. And our perspective begins to change. Suddenly the troubles and the trials of life don't seem so weighty anymore. Our sorrows seem so much smaller in the light of something so great and so glorious, which is ours in Christ. Weeping may remain for a night, but joy will come in the morning. But that's not all that Paul has to say here, is it? 
That, that's one verse, but we read more than the one verse. I consider our, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But then verse 19 says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And I say, well, what does that mean? The creation? What does any of this have to do with the created world. We won't live forever in the created world, you might say. You might say, well, no, our eternal souls will live forever in heaven with Jesus. My body is falling apart, but that's okay because it is well with my soul, and it's my soul which is eternal. It's my soul that will live forever with my Lord. Well, I would ask you the question, what did Jesus redeem with His blood? Did He redeem our souls? Yes, He did. But He also redeemed our bodies. Look at verse 23. We are waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And we shouldn't be surprised because we know that Jesus, the great pioneer, the forerunner of our faith, we know that Jesus, having been uh, raised from death, was given a new body, a glorified body, which was in some ways different from the body that He had before He died. But in some ways, there was continuity there too. It was a real body different but real. And we are waiting for our resurrection bodies too. We can't fully understand what they will be like, but we do know that we will not be disappointed. We know that our bodies will be glorious. There's something to look forward to. Uh, and these bodies will be made for the new world that is made for us to inhabit. Jesus redeems the souls of His people, but also our bodies, and He redeems the created world itself. So, we are taken all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God creates the world. He sees that it is good, but then it's not long, is it? That's you know, the start of Genesis, but by the time we come to Genesis chapter 3, it all goes horribly wrong. Adam and Eve, man and woman, rebel against God, and the consequences of that rebellion are catastrophic. Now, human beings must live under this curse. They must face pain and toil and death, and not just human beings are affected, but the created world falls under this curse too. It didn't choose to rebel against God, but it falls under the curse. There is pain, there is natural disaster, there is brokenness everywhere. So we look to human beings now, and this is all of us from the very, very worst to the very, very best, and we see beauty, we see profound goodness as those who are created in the image and likeness of God but we also see profound evil. 
We see a deep ugliness as those who have rebelled against God, as those who live in a world broken by sin, as those who are a fallen people born with a propensity to sin. There is beauty and there is brokenness in each and every one of us. And as we look to the created world, we can say exactly the same thing, can't we? There is great beauty that points to the the beauty and the majesty of God. The, The skies proclaim the works of His hands. But we also see great brokenness. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. I heard an interview with with David Attenborough once, and he said that he received a lot of letters from Christians who would say to him, you know, given how much of the beauty and the wonder of the world that you have seen, how is it that you cannot bring yourself to acknowledge that there is a creator God? And he said to the person interviewing him that he always responds in exactly the same way. He points to a wee worm. I have long since forgotten the name of this worm. But he says this, this worm lives by bur- and I'm sorry, it's a bit graphic as well, but by burrowing its way through the eyes of various animals. And his case was that that is inconsistent with belief in a creator God, because how could a creator God create a wee worm that, that lives by burrowing its way through the eyes of other animals? Well, I believe that it is consistent. It is consistent with the post-Genesis 3 world in which we live. There is great beauty and there is also great brokenness. And Paul here in Romans 8, having spoken about the conflict that exists in the life of the believer, conflict between the old nature and the new nature, he now makes mention of the pain of the created world. He gives the created world a voice, as it were. Creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice. It wasn't the created world's fault. It was humanity's fault. It was Adam's fault. He speaks of the creation's longing to be freed from the effects of the fall. He speaks of its frustration and its pain. But the pain he speaks of is a particular type of pain, isn't it? It's the pain of childbirth. You will be relieved to hear that I have never experienced the pain of childbirth. So you may think me unqualified to comment, but there are Just a couple of things I think I can say with confidence about the pain of childbirth. The first of those is this, that it's sore. It is painful. Very painful. And the created world is not at peace. It is in real pain, real discomfort. It it is... the, The fall of humanity has had a profound, deeply damaging effect on the created world. The second thing I can say about the pain of childbirth is that this is a pain that leads 
to something truly wonderful. I remember the moment that Katie and Grace came into the world. And I don't have a good memory, but I remember those moments with crystal clarity. They were moments filled with wonder and with joy. I cannot articulate how I felt in that moment, and I can only imagine how Deborah, who had carried these children inside her, who had nurtured them and developed them for those nine months before they arrived in the world, how she must have felt in that moment. Wonder and joy. And I have been told by those who have experienced that pain and that moment that in the joy of the, uh, of the seeing the, the, the newly born baby, the, the pain that the young or the, the mother has just experienced is quickly forgotten. The created world is still in pain. And it has been for a long time. It has been since Adam and Eve rebelled against the God who had been so good to them. And we've been doing the same ever since. But it's not forever. Jesus will come again to make all things new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new Eden, we might say, for us in which to live with our new glorified imperishable bodies. We will be home at last. And, and the, the pains of this life, the pains of this world will be quickly forgotten in the presence of such glory and such wonder and such joy. Listen to these words as we come to a close from the final two chapters. We thought about the opening chapters of Scripture, Genesis. Let's hear some words from the last two chapters of Scripture, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. This is our future in Christ Jesus. So we can say with Paul that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we can press on in hope, with joy, 
as we eagerly await the return of our Lord and the glorious new reality that He will bring to bear. So let's bring our thanksgiving, our celebration, and our praise to God as we stand to sing our closing hymn, All That Thrills My Soul is Jesus. <laughs>